0: Welcome to the Wealthcast, where host Charles Bowinski and his guests share their global expertise and the most current information for your financial planning needs. Each inspiring interview will help you to maximize your financial stability and growth so you can have more time doing the things you love. And now, here's Charles.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Wealthcast. I'm your host, Charles Bowinski. On this podcast we bring you the information that you need to know to be a good steward of your wealth and enjoy the luxury of financial independence today i'm very happy to welcome as my guest robin powell robin is an award-winning journalist and campaigner for change in the global financial securities industry with his primary focus being investor education and increasing the transparency of the industry as a whole Robin is a member of the Chartered Institute of Journalists and was a visiting media fellow at Duke University. In addition, Robin has written and produced highly acclaimed documentaries about investing, including Index Funds, the 12-Step Recovery Program for Active Investors, and Investing the Evidence. Today, Robin and I will discuss the current state of the industry, the topic of evidence-based investing, as well as what the future may hold for the industry. Robin, welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you were able to join us and talk about the important subject of evidence-based investing.
2: It's a real pleasure to speak to you again, Chaz. Thanks for having me on. You're
1: very welcome. Why don't we start with the basics, which is, from my perspective, how do you define evidence-based investing?
2: Well, it, it's a strange name, isn't it? Evidence-based investing. And if you don't know anything about it, you think, well, of course, investing would be based on evidence. What's it going to be based on? But actually, you'd be amazed that, that most investing is actually based on just hunches, on guesswork, on opinions, on personal relationships, and you know, working with people who you've worked with before, and all that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, it, it, we've got a long way to go in the investing industry to get to anywhere near, for example, what, what has happened in in, in medicine. Um, I mean, the, the history of evidence-based uh, medicine isn't actually all that old. I mean, I've just been reading uh, Bill Bryson's book on, on the body, and uh, in there he was saying how... Yeah, you know, up until about sort of seventy-five hundred years ago, um, people who would, were, you know, ostensibly trying to help patients were actually causing them more harm, if you like. Sure. Thankfully, that that has all changed in medicine, and we've seen you know huge increases in uh, longevity uh, as a result. It's much much slower to take off uh, in investing. Broadly speaking, I would define it as relying not on hunches and guesswork, but on what the academic consensus is and and what the latest data tells us. And and by data, I don't mean industry data, I don't mean data provided by uh, product providers, I mean, provided by third parties uh, like S&P Dow Jones indices, for example, Morningstar is another reliable source of objective information. Uh, that's, what, that's what I would call uh, evidence-based investing.
1: In my own experience during my career, which started in 1984, the definition or the, the, the name evidence-based investing didn't even exist. In those days, a, a diversified portfolio was a portfolio that was twenty stocks that was considered mm, that paid mm. dividends that was considered a quote unquote widows and orphans portfolio yeah and and very defensible and today that kind of portfolio would be considered borderline irresponsible quite exactly and, and so that's that's changed so how how do you think that every evolution has progressed. You know who's what's been the cause of it? What, in your view, what has sort of accelerated that evolution around the world, but particularly in the UK?
2: Well, I, I think um, it's too early to say that that we're on the winning side. Even I, I, I think. I mean. Edi- evidence-based investing has grown very quickly well say very quickly uh, it, it's grown over about a sort of 30 year period in, in in the US We've still got a long way to go in the US let alone the rest of the world. yes um, here in the UK this is still very much a minority interest. Uh, Australia is is exactly the same. Uh, South Africa, uh, where, you know, I, I speak to clients and so on, uh, there again, uh, a sort of long way behind the US on this. I think the, the, the main reason it took off in the US really was was, was the invention of the computer, which, which enabled, you know, the likes of Eugene Farmer, the, 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 the Nobel Prize winning economist at Chicago Business School to do his research into asset pricing. The data, the, the, the evidence just became overwhelming. And then, of course, uh, in the 1970s, we had a couple of very uh, important landmark books, one by Charlie Ellis, uh, Winning the Losers Game, and the other by um, Burton Malkiel, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, which we're told influenced Jack Bogle in setting up the first you know, index fund. And, you know, that, Actually, took a long long time to take off but when people started to realize hey I'm saving a heck of a lot of money by investing in a low-cost index fund rather than you know trying to chase the latest hot manager and so on and the media and the media plays a, a huge part and you know in the US you've got some really good journalists you know I'm thinking of the likes of um, you know, Jonathan Clements, for example, mm-hmm. on the Wall sure. Street Journal, he was writing about this stuff a long time ago. I, I think it was actually Jason Spide uh, took over from Jonathan at the Wall Street Journal. And again, he has really uh, told it as it is. And as a result, there is now a kind of consensus, actually, if you like, in, in the American media that, that you know, that, that, that certainly low cost uh, investing is the way to go.
1: Yeah, it seems, it, certainly in my experience, that's been the case. And as the thought process evolves, one of the, you know, in the early days of my career, one of the, the knocks on indexing was that it was, quote unquote, un-American. Mm. Because the idea was that if you worked hard, you could, you could always outperform the competition through hard work. Whereas I think over time that developed, that that sort of thought process changed a little bit. And it the thinking became more of, well, indexing, the success of indexing is really an homage to capitalism. You know, it is, it, it is you know, there are so many hardworking people out there ferreting out prices and doing price discovery every day mm-hmm. that of mm-hmm. course, it's very difficult to outperform an index.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I I would say that the active fund management industry is is distinctly un-American in 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 that sense, in that it's a very large, powerful, unwieldy uh, industry which is very very uncompetitive, and it was absolutely ripe for 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 disruption, you know, and it has has thankfully finally been disrupted and and uh, you know we we're now getting your uh, uh you know big sort of fund managers uh, vanguard dimensional over here and at first you know there was a bit of kind of you know who do they think they are you know parking their truck on our yard sort of thing but uh, <laughs> Great. i think most people over here are now realizing that you know we we should have we we should have had a vanguard we should have had a dimensional of our own. And, uh, you know, I can only see those two two companies growing their market share in the, in the UK.
1: Yeah, it's, I've, uh, I've had, as you know, a, a little bit of a window into primarily the German uh, financial mm. services industry, but also the, the, the financial services industry in the UK through presentations I've done in both mm. places. And you know ten years ago or so when I was in the UK talking about this, it was well understood, but it was still very early. Mm. Um, the thinking was still being developed, I think, and it I've been impressed by how quickly it's been adopted, it seems mm. by practitioners in the UK in particular. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's funny you should say that because um, uh, I, I remember talking to uh, David Pitt Watson, who is one of our kind of leading transparency campaigners here. Uh, he he was at uh, he was then uh, not sure what he is now at, at London Business School, and I was saying, David, you know there is all this evidence that you know low cost investing is the way to go. That active management, you know, that the, the the returns that we're getting are just not good enough. They don't justify what we pay for it. I said, when when do you think all this will come out? And he said, and this was about sort of four years ago, something like that. And he said, in the next two or three years. And I remember thinking, then, wow, that's really optimistic. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, I have to say that we've had an amazing four years. Um, and you know, one thing has led to another. Um, I mean, uh, just, just thinking about the major events we've had, we, we've had, for example, the chief executive of the Investment Association, which is a trade industry body here in the UK, four fund managers. He effectively said, right, we should have a code of conduct for all our members. Everyone should sign up to this. And one of the key points of the code of conduct is that firms should act in the client's best interests. And, of course, there was an amazing sort of uh, reaction from from members. They did not like this at all. He lost his job. Uh, he, He was got rid of. And I think that opened people's eyes to what to what's been going on. We then had a report by the Financial Conduct Authority. The FCA is our kind of um, equivalent of the SEC, uh, and well the the initial report the interim report was very critical of the fund industry, unfortunately, as is the nature of these things, as you know, the industry lobby gets working on <laughs> you know, on, the, sure. on, on on the regulator they got the, got it watered down, so the final report was was not as hard hitting but even still was very critical and then I think the third the third thing and and really bigger than all the others has been. The incredible demise of, um, spectacular demise of, of Britain's you know, best known fund manager, Neil Woodford. He, he was considered untouchable a few years ago. You know, you would read about him in the press and even the BBC, there'd be just sort of, uh, he'd, be, he'd be spoken about in kind of glowing terms. He spectacularly failed uh, when he left the fund management company he was with to set up his own. Uh, there's a big platform here in the UK called Hargreaves Lansdowne, which stuck by him and said no. You know he's done it in the past; he'll do it again. And of course, he went down and down and down and down and down. And down. It turned out he was investing in a whole load of illiquid stocks, mm-hmm. um, and and a lot of them. Uh, everyone involved in the fund and Hargreaves-Lansdown actually did very well out of it. Of course, the only people who didn't do well out of it are the people who actually invested their money in it. And, yeah. and they haven't actually got had their money back yet. So I think that really has opened eyes. Um, and we're seeing now in the press, the UK press, much more kind of awareness that actually you know all might not be as rosy in the active management garden as we were led to believe it was
1: well there there's certainly um, you know a lot of big buildings and and fat salaries that are dependent on the active mm. management industry right and so it, mm. depend, it it's very hard to change your philosophy when your economic interests are intertwined with mm. the foundation of that philosophy and and that's that that's absolutely it has to be true
2: Mm-hmm. I read a comment by uh, Ben Johnson, who, who you'll know is the director of index strategy at S&P uh, Dow Jones, I meant Morningstar, of course, yep. in Chicago, and is being interviewed about how active managers have done this year. And as you know, you know, we've heard for years that active managers do better when markets fall. Did that happen in March and April? No, it didn't. Yeah. No, they, they spectacularly underperformed. They did even worse than they, than they did when the market was going up. So this, this claim that anti-management somehow offers kind of downside protection, Ben Johnson said it's, it's a concept that belongs in the same category as you know the Easter bunny or, or Santa Claus. He went on to say, you know, we want to believe. That's the problem. We want to believe it's true. And there are so many people with a vested interest in it being true. I think a lot of these people, they're not being dishonest, uh, only in the sense that they're being dishonest with themselves. They can't admit that that they're wrong. Well, the very
1: nature of the issue is that it's complex, right? The, mm. h- how you determine these things, your comfort level with statistics, et cetera, so that you can evaluate the research and, and look at the, at the results with the perspective that's required mm. to fully appreciate what's actually going on. It's, it, it makes it difficult for investors. And as a result, mm. when, when there's a lot of noise, you know, mm. the, it's a confusing environment for people. And mm. when you combine vested interests, as you just said, with the noise of the capital markets, it makes it almost an impenetrable wall to get yeah. through for people to see that this is this is really an issue, and it's an issue that they can actually use to their advantage mm. by being disciplined and lowering mm. their costs, et cetera. Yeah. But it's it's like I, I I liken it to riding a bicycle. Once you get it and you see it. Mm. You know, once you ride a bicycle, you can ride a bicycle for the rest of your life, right? Mm-hmm. Once you see clearly what how the capital markets work and and mm-hmm. how the pieces work together mm-hmm. in a big picture sense, success becomes relatively straightforward.
2: Yeah, no, I, exactly. Um, I, I think a lot of lot of what goes on uh, when we have a period of extreme volatility, and let's face it, I mean. March was horrendous, wasn't it? I mean, you know, uh, even for you and I who, you know, don't really look at the stock markets, even I was looking at it and thinking, crikey, you know, how much lower can it, can it Absolutely. go? Absolutely. But, but, the, but the point is, chance that you can, and I, I, would, I would say this to people, that, that actually it's possible to be worried, to be worried about the situation, to be worried about your family, obviously, and, and your health, to be worried about the economy and where all this is going to end up, and you know whether you're going to have a job at the end of it, you, you can do all that, but you can still also acknowledge that actually there is nothing that you or I can do about it, uh, and that the rational thing to do is just to sit tight, uh, and and you know to, to to sell when markets have already fallen is is, is a bad idea. Unless, obviously, you know, you really have realised that you can't handle it. But but in that case, you've been badly advised in the past. You've had the wrong asset allocation, you know, to, to, to start with. But generally speaking, the, the thing to do is to just sort of sit there and, you know, I'll be honest, and I'm I'm sure you would say the same thing, I am absolutely amazed that the markets are where they are at the moment, you know, but that's only my personal opinion and and probably the opinion of of most. Of course. I actually just posted something on Twitter about um, the worst crash in the UK was actually, I don't think it was quite so bad stateside, but... Uh, the worst crash here was 72 to 74. It was absolutely horrendous. I remember talking to a, 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 someone who was a trader at the time who said, you know, it was genuine talk of the FTSE 100 going down to zero. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was so bad. I'm not
1: surprised. Yep.
2: Yeah. And it went on for two years. And so, <laughs> so what, what I what I wrote was uh, at times like this when when markets are at or near all-time highs and and you know amazingly that's where we find ourselves at the moment you know The S&P 500 is only what a sort of couple of hundred points or something off its all-time high which is mm-hmm. incredible We have to remind ourselves that that you know Stock market crashes happen um, And they can be absolutely horrendous um, we need to make sure that we are prepared you know, that our portfolio is prepared and we are prepared sort of mentally and emotionally for, for what might happen. And I'm not speaking with any knowledge of what will happen or what could happen, you know, and all this talk about the current uncertainty. I mean, there's no more uncertainty now than there was six months ago or 12 months ago. Um, it's just that we've had a heck of a fright.
1: You know? Yes, absolutely.
2: But time and again, you know, the evidence is, is proved right that the best thing to do is to just stay calm and keep putting money into the what, you know, into the stock market. And it, maybe when markets have gone down, if you can put a little bit more in every month, then do so. Mm-hmm. But more or less, just just carry on exactly as you were.
1: Yeah, the discipline of rebalancing and and um, watching your taxes and keeping your costs low is 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 important in all markets, but especially mm-hmm. important especially important in this kind of environment. And it's, look, it's totally understandable from my perspective that people would have a heightened level of sensitivity to what happened in March and April, because mm. it was certainly severe in terms mm. of the market, but it was also caused by a threat to people's health. Uh-huh. And, and that's, un- that's different than the normal Situation. So when you when you combine those two things, it created some ang- acute anxiety, and still does. It's still creating it, and it's totally understandable. So you know, in a normal environment, at least in my experience, when you go through a bear market, you can be a little bit more detached about it, even though it's personally affecting you because of the values of your portfolio fluctuating. But in this case, it's harder to do that because mm-hmm. you have the added layer of stress. So you had two, yes. two sources of stress, your health and, your, yes. and the financial markets. And mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. two things did not add one plus one did not equal two. It equaled yes. seven, mm-hmm. you know, on a stress scale. So it was this, it was this geometric um, increase in stress. And so mm-hmm. it's very, very understandable um, from my mm-hmm. perspective that people would be, would be, um, uh, you know, unusually sensitive to to what happened mm. in March, but and I would agree with you. What happened in you know subsequent to that is is I think a surprise to most people. Mm. The fact that the market's recovered as quickly as they did, mm. I think, would be a pleasant surprise to most people. Yeah, probably yeah. In, in in your view too. It, it just supports the idea of having a strategy that you can stick with that you understand that is that is well implemented. That may require some adjustment if your life circumstances change. You know, people's life changes and it, and it requires them to to revisit their allocation or their, their investment mm-hmm. strategy. But for the majority of people, I would agree with you. Being disciplined and executing the strategy in all times, whether that's good or bad, is, mm-hmm. is the best recipe for success.
2: There were many advisors over here on, on social me- media saying, you know, I've gone to cash. I've recommended all my clients go to cash. And people like m- me and, and, and other you know, evidence-based investors and, and advisors who, who were saying, you know, keep, keep calm. Um, you know, th- they were calling us irresponsible, you know, saying you're just encouraging them to, to throw more good money after bad and, and all the rest of it. Those advisors, they'll have a very strong case against them uh, from their clients for having not acted in, in their best interest. They should know better than, than that. I would be very, very surprised if even you know, 10% of those advisors had caught the rebound because, of course, the rebound happened just so quickly. Yeah, there's no doubt. Yeah. there's no doubt. Mark it down five, one day up 10 or whatever it was the next day. And, and you know, there's no way that those advisors, you know, got them out at just the right time and back in again at just the right time, you know, just, you know, just defies belief really.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree. In your career as, you know, interviewing folks around the world really in, in terms of in terms of evidence based investing and doing the research mm-hmm. and and helping society to build the case for evidence based investing. You've you've had the opportunity to interview and have conversations mm-hmm. with with some really important financial yeah. experts. Yeah. Who you know when you, when you think back on those interviews, where do you think you really got your extra charge to keep going forward? Who who inspired you in in those conversations the most?
2: I I think you have to say, and and I suppose you'd you'd expect me to say this, but but an interview I did just a few miles from from where you're sitting at Vanguard uh, with with, with Jack Bogle. I was lucky enough to actually interview him a couple of times. He was the most extraordinary uh, character. Um, Mm -hmm. It's funny, at that time, not very many people had actually or well, certainly from outside of the US had actually interviewed him about Vanguard and indexing and, and, and so on. So, you know, certainly a lot of advisors over here were saying, well, you know, how, how did you persuade him to, to talk to you? He is the most charming, uh, humble, uh, lovable guy uh, who just genuinely wanted to do the right thing for consumers. I mean, clearly he was a very astute businessman as well, but once he realised that you know I'd done my research and uh, you know and that I wanted to find out about you know the, the work that he's, he was doing, he, he was very welcoming. Um, said we're all set, Robin. You come over and you know we'll we'll have a chat. And uh, yeah, so so that that was that was really inspiring. Um, but there are so many others. I mean, Charlie Ellis is is another really lovely guy. Very smart. Whenever I hear him interviewed, he's so polite. He's so polite about active fund managers, and you know, clearly he always says he's friends with active fund managers and so on. And you know, he, he really could, if he wanted, stick the boot in because he's been saying this for forty years. Yeah, yeah no he No one's has. been listening to it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Not enough people, anyway. But but again, very inspiring. Um, uh, Ken French uh, up at uh, Dartmouth College, um, really bright guy. Uh, Eugene Farmer, obviously, uh, what what an honour. I mean, have actually um, I'm lucky to have <laughs> interviewed a few Nobel laureates and not as a journalist and not just in the field of, in, of investing, but that really does stick in the memory. That interview, I felt completely <laughs> out of my depth and hugely honoured that there was this guy, you know, willing to talk to me about you know, about his painstaking research into, into asset management and investing. But, yeah, very memorable. And then the other guy I would mention, actually, is uh, William Sharp. We went to his home at Carmel uh, in California and spoke to him there. Again, you know, he's been saying this stuff for, for years uh, he, he wrote a, a really good paper, as you probably know, in 1991, a really short paper, The Arithmetic of Active Management. Which, yeah, it's fantastic. Frankly, yeah. Is, is, is really all you need to know <laughs> to understand why. Well, that's brilliant when you can distill a, a
1: complicated subject down into a page Absolutely. and a half or something.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Well, you've, you've certainly had the advantage um, that... that few people have had of talking to folks from Bogle mm-hmm. to Fama to Sharp. And so what do you feel is your responsibility now? I mean, do you, do you feel like you've got this pool of knowledge Yeah. and it's a, is it a personal thing? Is it a business thing? What is it, what's giving you the energy to, to make this work and to, to talk to people about these subjects? Uh,
2: I mean, When I found out about all this, you know, I interviewed these people, I did my own research, and, you know, I had the aha moment, you know, that Rick Ferry talks about, that people will with evidence-based investing, you know, just it suddenly just all clicks. And I I don't want to sort of describe it like a religious conversion, but I, I sort of knew at that point that, wow, this is... This is a big story, you know, and I, I, and I talk about stories because I'm, I'm a journalist. You know, I, I've done some big stories. Um, I was in Iraq. I, I was one of the first journalists at Guantanamo Bay to sort of tell, tell that story and, and so on. You know, I, I, I reported on some really interesting things around the world. But it seems to me, and I still actually genuinely do believe this, this is the biggest story I've ever worked on. Because uh, investing is so important, it has such an impact on everyone's lives. Here we have a kind of industry that is getting in the way of people having their fair share of capitalism. That, uh, basically, for me, that's what it, that's what it boils down to. The, you know, millions and millions of people around the world are not getting their fair share. Uh, and, and, and when they, I'm not saying everything will be hunky dory when they do, but they'll have more money in their pockets. Uh, okay, there'll be, the fund industry will will put less into the exchequer here in the UK, uh, you know, in the, in the same, the tax man in, in America, but, but actually there'll be more people in ordinary people's pockets. Uh, and people will be able to enjoy their retirement. Yeah, yeah. They'll actually, we have to have a retirement because at the moment, for a lot of people, it's looking like you know, we're going to have to work for a very, very long time.
1: Yeah, it's uh. Well, I think that's a that's certainly a noble cause. You know, trying to mm. trying to educate and demo- sort of democratize this information mm-hmm. in the face yeah. of a lot of walls. Yes, that have a vested interest in not having it be democratized. Exactly. I, I think that that's, that's fantastic. What do you think, just in closing, what do you think the future holds? What's your, what are your next projects? What, what's on the horizon for you that you think you're really, that you're really excited about?
2: Uh, wow. Well, uh, good, good question. Um, I'm very involved in the transparency, what we call the transparency movement here in the UK. We've got an organization particularly called the Transparency Task Force which is a voluntary organization, which is actually working in the US as well, but it works in Australia and various other sort of countries around the world. And we're just basically trying to make the financial services industry more transparent so that everyone knows what's going on, the actual performance that private equity funds and hedge funds are actually delivering rather than what they claim to be delivering you know, how much you're actually paying, you know, and as you know, it's not just the headline charge. Sure. And I think when the industry has a, a, a responsibility to be thoroughly, we'll never get 100% transparency, but when, when it is more transparent and people really can see clearly with their own eyes what's good value and what's, what's, what's bad value, they will start to do the right thing um, and, and more and more people will come to advise firms like independence advisors. More and more people will read my blog. Yeah, and and so I think that's the that's the next big um, battle, if you like. Actually, you remember listening to one of Jack Bogle's last his final addresses. I think he gave it in in Philadelphia, actually, um, and he actually said transparency is the next big sort of frontier, if you like.
1: Absolutely, I, we share the same view. The transparency mm. cures a lot of problems, and absolutely. I'm looking. I'm looking forward to see uh, to see what you what you're up to, and and perhaps we can have another chat in the future to get an update from you as to what's what's transpired over over the period of time. And absolutely, I'm a big fan, and I wish you the best of of success. And and again, wanted to say thank you for for spending time with us today.
2: Oh, sure. It's great to see your company going from strength to strength as well. And I'm, I'm not at all surprised that it is.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much for the kind words. Until next time, Robin. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you very much for joining Robin Powell and me today. If you'd like to learn more about evidence-based investing, please visit our website at www.independenceadvisors.com. In addition, we will include links in the resources for this podcast to Robin's website, where he has a tremendous amount of information on the subject as well. Thank you again. Until next time, follow the evidence.
0: Thanks for tuning in to The Wealthcast. You can get all the details on this episode, our guests, and everything you need to know so you can create and enjoy the luxury of financial independence by visiting us at moderawealth.com slash The Wealthcast. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you catch every episode. We'll see you next time on The Wealthcast. This has been a production of Twin
1: Flame Studios.